Hello, good evening, and welcome to Gradcast, where we bring Western to the world. I'm your host tonight. My name is Yemin Chan. And I'm your co-host for tonight, Ariel Frame. Uh, I'm glad to introduce today a fellow student in the neuroscience program, Vicky Telios. Hi, everyone. Well, hi, Vicky. We're very excited to have you here today. So you're a PhD student in the Department of Neuroscience. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, your role there? What's your position? Who do you work with? So I'm in my first year PhD. I just transferred over. Um, I work under the lab of Dr. Wee Yang Liu. Um, He's also cross-appointed with FizzFarm, so that's a nice uh, little added tidbit there. And yeah, so I'm currently doing my PhD there, uh, working with um, cerebellum and the role of nitric oxide. So we'll talk about that, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. So cerebellum, basically a a part of the brain. Yes. Um, The only part of the brain I really know is the medulla oblongata. because of Adam Sandler. Uh, can you tell us a little <laughs> bit about the cerebellum? Like, where is it? What part of the brain is it? What does it do? So I look at the cerebellum in mice, and I guess it's similar to humans. It's located in the back of the brain, so near the back of your neck. Um, it's known for its role in motor coordination, movement. Um, there's also a role in spatial recognition, so where you are in space. Um, as well as eye movements, so that's a, a key player there. Yeah. So I guess those are the the key uh, key points. Okay, cool. And so, what aspects of the cerebellum are you studying? So I look specifically at um, the major neuron population inside the cerebellum. So that's the Purkinje neuron, and um, it's a really unique cell. They uh, They look a little bit different than all of the other neurons that you can find in the brain. They're arranged in a really cool monolayer, so um, that's interesting. And they have, um, they're really special because they have this really intense um, dendritic arbor so that they look like little trees inside your brain. So that's really, it's really nice when you get to image them and to look at them under the microscope. They look really cool. So monolayer, that's like one Mm -hmm. sheet of sort of cells that are little tiny trees Mm -hmm. inside your head. Essentially. Oh, that's really neat. Yeah, it's really fun to look at. Okay, so what about these cells? Mm -hmm. What is it about these cells that you're studying? So um, they're the main motor response from the cerebellum. So uh, they're pretty important in terms of um, coordinating your movements and such. Um, What I look at specifically is the synaptic connections that occur on the Purkinje neurons. So um, there's a specific synapse called the parallel fiber Purkinje neuron synapse, and um, it's pretty important in regulating your movement during development. So from when you're a kid to how you are now with your fine motor skills versus I'm sure you guys know like kids when they're running around, they're not the most coordinated individuals. So um, there's a lot of refinement that has to go on. And I look at how um, nitric oxide specifically regulates that refinement of the specific synapse. So nitric oxide, um that's an interesting one because uh, I feel like a lot of people have heard of it mm-hmm. somewhere uh, right. differently, not mm-hmm. in the context of science. I feel like I've been playing video games with cars and heard about it <laughs> or uh, maybe at the dentist's office. And it seems yeah. like this elusive thing that might make you uh, laugh. It might 
right. make your car go faster. <laughs> is it anything the same? Do we see this elsewhere or is mm, it just the brain? Yeah, not not specifically. So nitric oxide is everywhere in your body. It's not just in the cerebellum or just in the brain. So we have enzymes that create it. Um, that's specifically one of the enzymes that I'm looking at in the cerebellum, um, neuronal nitric oxide synthase. Um, so yeah, nitric oxide is everywhere. It conducts a whole array of cellular processes so such as cell migration cell proliferation cell division and so on and so um it really it really keeps everything in place and all together as one big homeostasis so it, it really regulates all of the the fine processes in your body in terms of um cellular mechanisms so um i guess what's interesting to me um is that it unlike a lot of other signals we have in the brain where we, we, we talk a lot on this program we even talk about um, proteins and we talk about DNA mm -hmm. um, but this is a gas yeah uh, and that's mm -hmm. a, that's we don't really talk about that too much like there's no, gas really. in the brain <laughs> it almost sounds like you wouldn't want that in the brain would oh, you but no, you apparently <laughs> you do apparently yeah. you do so how does that work like how do you have a gas in the brain and mm -hmm. how does it tell anything to do anything so the enzyme that I'm looking at, NNOS, it creates nitric oxide from the amino acids that you take in from your diet. So um, arginine is a big um, precursor to creating nitric oxide, and you can find that in various you know, meats and so on. So it's, it's an amino acid that you'll take up for, through your diet, and um, it'll be converted into nitric oxide through um, all of these nitric oxide synthases that you can find in your body. And... The thing about it being a gas is it's highly diffusible, very transient, so it doesn't stay put for too long where you want it to be. So the cell finds different ways in um, getting this message across that nitric oxide needs to get through, um, through secondary messengers. And so um, we look at that in our lab a little bit. How does nitric oxide affect these cell processes when it has such a short time to do so? Yeah. Oh, wow. I mean, your experiments might be like, okay, so um, we have... A, f a fraction of a second to look at this <laughs> phenomena. So uh, let's do a thousand today. Or <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't quite look, work like that. I look at the end result of nitric oxide, so I don't really see what happens. It's really hard to measure. Um, a lot of people who work with nitric oxide don't get to um, see the exact timing because it's very tiny, and most people measure just the metabolites of nitric oxide, so nitrates, nitrites. Um, so that's sort of the end process that we would look at. And um, we also look at functionally, how does, how does this compare to a cell or a tissue that does have nitric oxide present? So over time, we're looking at it in a developmental sort of aspect. So over the course of a few weeks in terms of mice. So, so um, just like you, you know, you need a second second messenger mm -hmm. for that signal to be transmitted. You in order for you to even measure that it's nitric yeah. oxide uh, signaling is happening, you need a yeah. you need a proxy measure of your own just <laughs> to sure. just to tell. And I guess you look yeah. at those second messengers. Yeah, directly. we look at those second messengers as well as other proteins that may up may be upregulated from that initial nitric oxide release. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, it no one really looks at nitric oxide, the molecule, it's very elusive. Oh. So being such an elusive molecule, um, what techniques do you have to sort of research and study what nitrous oxide is actually doing? Like how important is it in terms of um, the health and maintenance of your cerebellum? Right. So what I look at specifically is um, 
So we look at the synapses and how they function, and a big portion of um, neuronal synaptic activity is calcium. So calcium plays a big role in how cells function and how they talk to each other. And that's the synapses. That's where different neurons sort of communicate with each other. Exactly. Okay, great. So, um, and that's how you get that end result of your motor output as well. So, Mm -hmm. um, calcium is the big ion behind that. And so, um, not sort of the calcium that you drink from your milk, but (laughs) the calcium that you'll find within the cell. Um, So, we look at calcium responses. So, what we'll do is we'll image... Um, calcium inflow into the cell through um, through different calcium imaging techniques. So um, just in brief, we'll add a calcium chelator. So it'll, it's a sort of, most of the time it's like a metal or something that's tied with a fluorescent dye. Um, it'll sort of keep all of the calcium in a reservoir and we can identify that through the microscope and we can see where the calcium is moving when we apply a certain drug like nitric oxide or something else. So you're attaching sort of glowing molecules to the calcium to see how it's moving and how it's being distributed? Essentially, yeah. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's really helpful in terms of um, what nitric oxide is facilitating. Calcium is a, big, um, is a big secondary messenger, like we said, that might propagate other processes in the cell. And so it's a, it's a big telling sign if we're doing something right or wrong in terms of our experiments. I have I have another question uh, that sort of steps back to um, you know why the cerebellum again. Mm-hmm. Um, right. uh, so I, I get you'd mentioned um, that it's you know uh, NOS yeah. or, uh, is 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 expressed I think in all in all neurons right? Uh, y- the majority I would say yeah not so, not all. Yeah. So um, is it that there's more neurons in the cerebellum, that's why there's more NOS there? Or are those neurons in the cerebellum individ- each releasing more NOS? So that's or really using yeah. more NOS? So it's really interesting because in the cerebellum, and NOS is the highest expressed um, NOS enzyme than anywhere else in the brain. So that means it must have some sort of role in regulating what's going on because even if you look in just the regular cortex or anywhere else in the brain we don't see that amount of neuronal nitric oxide synthase that we do in the cerebellum and it's interesting because the cerebellum only has I guess two main neurons granule neurons and Purkinje neurons and it has a fairly simple structure but we need this much nitric oxide to regulate the processes so it must have such a big role in um, synaptic signaling and so on so that's why we're looking specifically at the cerebellum because it is so affected by nitric oxide production. So what are some of these effects? I mean, presumably we kind of know what it looks like when it's healthy because mm-hmm. it's just normal day-to-day activity, but how can you tell when something's going wrong with, say, like NOS production or nitrous oxide in the cerebellum? So I can't really say to if nitric oxide is going wrong in the cerebellum, mm-hmm. but when we do see cerebellar deficits, um, known as cerebellar ataxia, that, um, that can manifest in many ways. So y- you'll see a staggering gait or loss of fine motor control. They mostly call these drunk symptoms. So you'll, <laughs> you look like you're drunk, essentially. <laughs> so the, it's an interesting phenotype, and it, it, it's 
funny to look at, but these people actually do do struggle doing um, normal processes throughout their everyday lives. So people people have it too, yeah, not yeah. just your mice. Yeah. Oh no so no no, no. <laughs> cerebral or cerebellar attacks. Yeah. yeah, right. So um, there, I think the rate is one in one hundred thousand people. It's fairly rare. I know Bill Nye actually has a a case of cerebellar ataxia. It's autosomal recessive in his in his family. Oh wow. That that's the celebrity link for today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean sometimes yeah. it does look like he's kind of drunk, I guess. Yeah. Uh, apparently he has symptoms too. I just looked this up recently. That's it's really interesting. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, in terms of the mice, um, mm-hmm. how do you use mice specimens to study mm-hmm. this um, this link between, well, possible link between, you know, uh, nitrous oxide and the cerebellum? So I use regular mice as a control, so just your everyday lab mouse. Um, and for our, um, I guess, uh, disease phenotype, we use um, neuronal nitric oxide synthase knockout mice. To, to compare between the wild type and this mouse to see if there are any differences. So what is a knockout mouse? Mm-hmm. Is it, you know, like a little mouse with boxing gloves? <laughs> <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> um, a knockout mouse, so what, w- what happens in this mouse is the gene that we are specifically looking at, or the enzyme, um, neuronal nitric oxide synthase, is not um, found in this mouse. So it's not transcribed, it's not... Um, it's not made into a protein and it's not functional. So it cannot produce nitric oxide. So this is sort of like a mutant strain of mice For that sure, can't yeah. produce this necessary um, yeah. enzyme. Only through that one, um, I guess, isotype or form of nitric oxide synthase. There's others. And right. That, yeah. And this is the one that uh, is more specifically found in the brain. Yes, so it's more specific to my project. So that's why we're looking specifically at neuronal nitric oxide synthase. There's other ones. So you have um, NOSs that can be found in the urovascular system. You have some that are only induced when um, when there's a big source of inflammation. Um, we're looking at specifically neuronal nitric oxide synthase. Is the distinction between the different types of NOS mm-hmm. mainly which cells express it or also their function? So if you mm-hmm. make INOS or one of the other NOSs expressed in neurons, would it would it take the place, take the function, replace the function of the NNOS if it was missing? That's a really interesting question. So it was sort of a two-part. Um, the first part, we... Neuronal nitric oxide synthase isn't strictly found in neurons. It's also found in your muscle. It can be found in various types of um, of tissue. And it's interesting because the I guess the general term for it is NOS1. So that was the first um, NOS enzyme that they found. They found it in the brain. So now everyone calls it neuronal nitric oxide synthase. The same with ENOS, um, endothelial nitric oxide synthase. They found it in endothelial cells. That was the third NOS they found. The second one was the inducible one, um, and that was when it was upregulated only in in the presence of an injury, and that's NOS2. So um, the two are found, um, so N-NOS and E-NOS are found just normally throughout your body, I-NOS only when there's a problem. Um, What was the second part? (laughs) The second part was, uh, you know, can they replace each other's function? Are they, like, um, interchangeable in terms of function? Yeah. they can be. So what I find with my mice especially, um, because we knocked out such a big portion of uh, the NO that's produced inside the brain, there is some compensation from other NOSs to try to get back to the same 
amount of nitric oxide. So I think the reason for that is calcium because they are calcium dependent. So because there's such a, there's a degenerative disorder, you have an increase of calcium, Enos senses that there's an upregulation of calcium, it's going to try to do its best to, um, to create more nitric oxide to remedy the process. So there is a bit of an upregulation that we do see. They try their best, but because it's such a widespread um, uh, knockout, then I don't think it can really catch up to, to the levels that it was physiologically. Wow, I find this really fascinating. You know, this seems like mm-hmm. such a fundamental process yeah. that you're you're targeting here. For sure, for um, sure. Uh, so I, I, I guess it seems these mice, you know, they if they're modeling uh, the, the disease and they also mm-hmm. sort of act kind of drunk and they don't... They do, they uh, do. <laughs> <laughs> what does that look like in a, in a mouse? So, <laughs> so the baby mice, if you let them walk by themselves, they'll just walk in circles, mostly to the left, which is a really interesting uh, hmm. phenomenon. Yeah, I, I don't know. I can't was, really explain that. What was that movie? There was a movie where someone could that's, only that's turn left. That's a Zoolander. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they're giving the the blue steel look all the time. All the time. Or maybe maybe um, Zoolander has a or cere- what? Cere- Magnum. Oh, yeah. Cere- Cerebellar cere- cere- attacks. Yeah, there he we could, go. yeah. That's the thing. It's a real thing. I thought we all thought he was making him up, making yeah. it up, and now. Yeah, it could be real. Uh, There's got to be yeah. some sort of game where you try to diagnose movie characters with <laughs> different sort of uh, brain, perhaps, deficiencies. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> so uh, uh, again, it's it's a really fundamental uh, process that's right. required in the brain, mm-hmm. and you see this uh, very young in your mice, right? Oh, for so, sure. So, do you think the effect is is you know uh, chronic throughout their whole life, or is it just really development that's being that's, uh, messed yeah, with? That's a really interesting question. So, the most pronounced deficiencies are found early on. So that's where you see the most prominent. Um, prominent deficiencies in terms of motor coordination and movement. They can't really walk. They can't um, find themselves in space. So that's really interesting. So what I think is happening is you don't really need your cerebellum to do all of your motor movement. You have your primary motor cortex in in your cortex region to help you with some sort of movement. So I think as you train yourself to get through, you know, the daily grind, you don't you rely less on your cerebellum and more so on your primary motor cortex which is not as affected so i think there's ways and we see that in humans too there's ways in which um we can remedy the the symptoms that we find in cerebellar ataxia it's not a death sentence such as other motor uh, disorders such as als or parkinson's or and so on so in this case like other parts of your brain can sort of be trained to compensate exactly. at least a bit for yeah. Mm-hmm. the f- yeah okay Mm-hmm. Well, thank, thanks for that. Otherwise, you, we wouldn't have had Bill Nye, right? Like, exactly, so, yeah. <laughs> sure. Excellent that our brain can do that. <laughs> for sure. And so have you found that your mice also mm-hmm. sort of learn to maybe turn right with time? Yeah, actually. <laughs> um, as we follow these mice into their adolescence and adulthood, um, we do see that they they do get better in terms of motor, um, their gait and their, their motor movements. Um, we still see deficiencies in terms of... Um, the morphology of their neurons, um, but they don't have a pronounced deficit like we see in their first week or two weeks of life. So that's really interesting to see overall. So morphology, that's Mm -hmm. sort of the shape of the neuron, what it looks like. Exactly. What sort of deficiencies are you seeing here then? So um, we look specifically at how many synapses are are found within um, the Purkinje neurons. So Mm -hmm. 
we'll see less or we'll see deformed synapses in the ones that don't have nitric oxide. So that's really interesting because the synapse is fundamental in um, creating your motor movement. So what's the uh, what's the scale of the deficiency here? Like in a, in a normal neuron cell, like w- how many synapses, how many um, dendrites roughly uh, would, would, would you a, have? A lot. A lot, okay. <laughs> a lot. Um, in the millions, millions. Oh, wow. Yeah. Per, per cell? Per cell. Right. Because okay. I, know, I know they talk about trillions and like more than the stars in the oh, sky yeah, in yeah. your brain. We're saying millions right, per okay. cell. Millions and, per cell. And you have other neurons synapsing, so you right. have a whole network going on. It's really fascinating. So each cell is, has millions of connections, yes. and each other cell has millions more. Yeah. Okay. Millions upon millions. <laughs> so, and what kind of decrease are, are you looking at here in terms of the, um, the abnormal cells? Uh, what type of decrease? Well, so like sort of in terms of number or oh, like shape, um, things like that? So we don't see a decrease in the number of neurons, but mm-hmm. we do see a de- decrease in terms of how many synapses they form. So I think that's really interesting because it tells that, you know, nitric oxide really affects the connections between the neurons rather than the actual survival of the neurons. So it hones in on a specific role that uh, this messenger plays. I think there's one one other question that I, I think I have to ask actually mm-hmm. because um, because one uh, one part that's really important for my work is uh, glial cells right and they're also important for mm-hmm. and specifically astrocytes. I'm which, also looking at that which recently, are yeah. <laughs> important for the synapse. So if you're saying for oh sure. synapses are affected, well what about the specific type of astrocytes that are in the so cerebellum? We, there's a really big population of um, a specific type of astrocyte, and it's called uh, Bergman glia. And um, we were recently looking at this, probably in the last few months. Um, it was a sort of side project that I wanted to take on, and um, we actually do see significant differences in terms of how these uh, these astrocytes function with regard to uh, the synapse. So um, what astrocytes do is they essentially take up the neur- neurotransmitter and um, reduce excitotoxicity, so you don't want to fire the neuron for way too long. Um, and it just regulates how m- much, um, I guess, information is being sent into the neuron. Um, so we do see differences in that. I can't tell you exactly the type of differences, but in terms of morphology, there's definitely a difference. Um, we're looking into the functionality right now. So, I mean, I guess that it was a little self-serving because I studied <laughs> that and I really wanted to know about it, but mm-hmm. uh, good to hear that there's like a cool effect there. Oh, yeah, there is um, definitely an effect. Um, so maybe we can talk just with our last few minutes mm-hmm. about sort of, you know, what it's like to be a grad student who works in work like you do. Because you mentioned mm-hmm. something like a, a side project. I mean, mm-hmm. how much of your work is self-directed or do you come in and your professor just says, like, this is what you do? So, so what's it like to work in, in your lab? I, it's a great experience so far. I really, really enjoyed the atmosphere. Um, my supervisor is very... Um, very keen on looking at um, the different processes in the cerebellum and he gives me a lot of leeway in terms of where the project will go and um, what sort of mechanisms we can look at and so I I really appreciate that specifically because I do get a lot of freedom in terms of what I want to look at and it becomes sort of my project and uh, it's good to work on something that you've created from the get-go right and see how it progresses as a as you put work into it so um, really happy with the experience so far. And what sort of got you interested in this mm-hmm. uh, area of study in the first place? So I actually did previous nitric oxide research um, at Western in my fourth year as a thesis student. Um, 
I was actually looking at the eye first, um, cool. nitric oxide in the eye and wound healing. And um, it's so sort that of- So that was INOS. INOS, ha, yes. Uh, we, we, learned, <laughs> so we learned something. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I looked at INOS, um, that project turned out really well I really enjoyed it and I got recruited by my supervisor because I looked at nitric oxide and it's a it's a whole cycle <laughs> so that worked out really well okay and you know here on GradCast we like to think that um, our graduate student guests are more than simply just graduate <laughs> students so outside of work um, mm-hmm. what what sort of things do you do when you're not in the lab um, what the, do you have time for? <laughs> the whole three hours that I have outside of the lab, I, uh, I like to go to sleep. Um, no, I, I also, I try to go to the gym as much as possible. I, um, I like to play volleyball, so that's something that keeps me sane off hours. So, um, yeah, the, those are my, um, my hobbies. <laughs> oh, great. And volleyball, I'm, I'm sure, yeah. is something that depends on, uh, on cerebellums. Yes, to, to a lot of movement property. coordination there, yes, for sure. <laughs> I also remembered you, you taught me how to play euchre. So we yeah. play euchre at the bar, too. We do play euchre, yes. That's a, that's a key aspect. <laughs> that is not a key one, yeah. Can't forget about euchre, right? Oh, we're going to have to teach you again. Yeah, I know, because I, I uh, yeah, I've got a lot to learn. Yeah. <laughs> it's as okay. A, we'll get you there. <laughs> as a fellow West Coaster, I, I'm not a huge fan of euchre either, Ariel. No. Don't, it's oh, okay. no. <laughs> it's okay. I was late in the game, too, so it's all good. <laughs> I mean, uh, having learned it, it, it it's kind of like a... a us a smaller simpler version of bridge and it seems like mm-hmm. a more good transition if i ever did want to learn bridge yeah for the later on in life yeah uh, when i'm old in the nursing eventually. home yeah right we're all gonna later. be fa- <laughs> we're all gonna be playing bridge uh, one way or the other yeah, at some point in our lives <laughs> <laughs> that or mahjong i guess <laughs> why not both you could make right? a new game patent it you could be rich sounds good <laughs> Um, so, uh, last thing that we would like to ask uh, before we, I'll hand it to Yemen and uh, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll finish the show, mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, if people are really interested in your work mm-hmm. and they want to follow up and find, who, what, what, what lab is this and what, right. what, what, what are you doing? And they want to find you in your lab, mm-hmm. where can they go online to find you? Um, they can email me. I think that's the best option. So, that's at v-t-e-l-l-i-o-s at uwo.ca. And we'll have that information on our website, which is gradcast.ca. And if you or your friends or anybody you know is a graduate student here at the University of Western Ontario, and you'd like to come on to our show, or you'd like to help us make GradCast happen every week, drop us a line at gradcastradio at gmail.com. We come every week. Tuesday, 6 p.m., we have our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google, and wherever you can find fine podcasts. GradCast is a production of the Society of Graduate Students here at the University of Western Ontario, and our producer today was Susan. Thanks, Susan. Theme tune has been composed for us by Matthew Becker.